We can talk about anything you want as Ignorance is episode 31. I'm back again with Chris Hoover. This is a fast follow episode to our uh, previous episode a week ago. This has never happened in the history of my vaunted podcast. <laughs> one week later, we've followed up on something. I, I have some follow-up episodes, but those were like two months later. <laughs> so <laughs> this is very rapid, so we'll see how this goes. We're breaking so, records, Missy. Yeah. Uh, so I did a little outline listening, you know, like in the editing process and listening back to episode 30. If you haven't listened to episode 30, you should probably listen to that one first because a lot of that is two hours of laying the groundwork, I think, maybe for where we're maybe going today, but maybe not. Who knows? We'll find out. The first thing I have here in my notes, if we want to follow my notes at all or whatever you want to do. So just whatever you want to do is fine also. Okay. Or did you see? I think you saw my notes. So the first thing I've written down here is Jay pushing back on... This is not a quote. This is not what you said, but th- this is what th- there's, there's an argument that gets put to me, um, a lot, which, um, you didn't exactly make this argument, but I wanted to make sure that we, uh, talked through it. Um, wh- one of the things that you said in our two hour conversation was that, um, uh, Bezos or whoever being rich doesn't affect you and you would feel like it would was would be wrong to take their money um because you have no right to it because they worked for it they earned it and you don't have any right to that that money is that a fair yeah recap so what so the the first thing i want to clear up i guess about that sentiment because i hear this sentiment a lot is well what are you just jealous of rich people like you know if you want more money go earn more money there's no problem and i'm not saying that's what you said i'm saying other people have said that exact thing to me (laughs) (laughs) and firstly it's not that i want bezos's money i don't i'm fine like i think i'm fine financially and i think you're fine financially and it's not that I want tax money to come to me because I think I have enough opportunities in this this country that I can go out and earn a living and uh, you know buy my own Ferrari if if what I want to do is have a Ferrari, right? I mean, the bank might give me a loan for a Ferrari <laughs> as a second mortgage or something, so I could have that next week if I wanted to. I think maybe I don't know. Um, <laughs> But it's not about me, right? And so what really frustrates me is when I get hit on Twitter with – this happened a couple years ago. I get hit on Twitter with, you're just jealous that's not your money. You can't take Jeff Jeff Bezos' money. It's not about me taking money. It's about trying to live in a society where people at the bottom of the the fiscal scale – have what they need to survive. So people that are lost their jobs due to COVID and have, you know, maybe they got some rental assistance, maybe they didn't, maybe they got evicted, maybe they didn't. But people that are really struggling because they've they worked a long time and then lost their job due to due to COVID or for example, those are the people that I want to give Bezos's money to. So I, I guess the first pushback is um it's not about me. It's about trying to find. I, th- I think in that episode I said there's 370 million Americans. I think that number is like 270 or 280, <laughs> not 370. I was only off by 100 million people. But it, it's about to me. Let's let's think about all of us as Americans. And I I don't have any problem with taking Bezos's money by force through taxation. 
and giving it to schools and giving it to build roads for not my benefit specifically, but for the benefit of uh, the people at the bottom of the economic spectrum. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so why don't reflect on that for me and I'll shut up for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, just for the sake of clarity, I didn't think that you were actually saying that you wanted the money. Although I probably should go back and listen to that just to make sure I wasn't. However, um, the reason why I kind of put myself in that situation is because I'm trying to judge whether or not it's moral, at least for me mentally to consider it moral for us to take from one person who has earned it and give it to somebody who has not earned it and then declare that as the moral right thing to do. So one, one thing that I, I really respect a lot about you is that you kind of, you, you put your actions behind your words. One statistic that I saw one time um, was that conservatives and religious individuals in general are more charitable with their own personal finances than um, the, if you wanted to generically say the left. And it, honestly, what's funny about that is, is that's generally what I see. You know, like I see a lot of people that are on the left that want to enact laws that take money from other people for quote unquote charity, but they don't actually want to give anything of their own free will like you do. Right. Mm. So, and and if, if that's been a different experience for you, uh, you should should probably comment on that. But at at the end of the day, that's one thing that I I respect about you and what you do. Um, what, um, I don't think is charitable and good is for uh, majority rule stuff where we say to ourselves, well, if 51% of the people says we're going to vote and take money away from somebody that's earned it and give it to somebody that hasn't earned it, the fact that we voted for it doesn't make it right. If we want to say, well, these people over here need help, um, let's take it from somebody that has it and give it to that person that needs help like the Robin Hood theory I guess you could say mm. I don't think that that's moral I think what is moral is what you do <laughs> right where you put your actions behind your words um, I think that sometimes we equate or I guess uh, probably a better way to say it would be is that we don't uh, think about the moral principles that we're trying to make laws on before we make them. And, and if I can't say to myself, I can't take money from Bezos and give it to myself. I, I can't vote to take from Bezos and give it to somebody else either. (laughs) That was the moral equivalent that I was trying to make. And, uh, yeah, I don't see those as being equivalents. So if we jump all the way to the Elysium, example right which i should have watched the movie in the last week i had a i had a week to go watch the movie but but you're you're familiar with the movie uh it's been a long time but yeah, i am yeah. familiar gosh I, I think i watched that like right when it came out yeah um but my, my my recollection of it is that like one percent of the of humans control all the resources and everyone else is scrabbling down on earth is that is that your recollection of the movie i think that the, uh, if I said anything, it would just be a bunch of BS. I thought that they, uh, that like 1% of the population, I, I don't remember them commenting about how much they control, but they had the ability to move 
away from the rotten planet that was down here and go up to this other place where they kind of lived a life of luxury. Yeah, leaving yeah. everybody else yeah. down there. And But they need the resources. They need the raw materials from Earth, mm-hmm. right? And so everybody down on Earth is basically – I feel like it's slave labor that – the 1% is controlling all of these people down on earth who are extracting all the raw resources that they need to live in the, the celestial paradise. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's just, it's not about this movie specifically. That's just an extremely stark example of where I'm worried that we are already on a path and could end up in a situation where, one percent of the people control everything. Ninety-nine percent of the people are scrambling to do anything, and that you're concerned that, well, just because fifty-one percent of people say it's okay to, not, to take money from the rich and give it to the poor, that's not okay because that poor individual that's in the one percent is is going to suffer, and they have individual rights to the money that they earned. Whereas I see it, and from a utilitarian perspective, I think as no, that is a totally screwed up society and you can't let society become that extreme, you know? So how extreme we are currently, like in 2022 in America, I don't know, but we're not to that extreme yet. But, you know, for me, it's unconscionable to think that someone can control all the wealth and all the rest of us, you know, are going to defend their rights to keep their individual wealth because, quote, they earned it, end quote. I mean, it's like, what? <laughs> How do you, like, so I don't know if I'm misrepresenting or if I'm changing your mind or uh, completely missing your point or what. So, Oh, no. Well, I, I, I think that um, for myself, what I try to avoid is the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, I guess you could say. I think both of us always kind of concede that we maybe don't know as much as we we should know or whatever the case may be. And I try to set I, I try not to presume that I know more than I do. Um however I think that one foundation for the way that I feel about it is the incentives and constraints around a society that allows it to prosper and grow. One of those is the incentive to do do the right thing and the disincentive to do the wrong thing. I think that both of those things are required in an effective society. I think the incentive to do things is the right to keep the money that you've earned. And I think the disincentive to do the wrong thing should be the consequences of not being productive with your life. Right. I do say that with caveats. I think one of them, one of the caveats that I already mentioned was, what do you do with the 20% of the population that isn't smart enough to even get into the army, right? Mm. <laughs> that That is a mental conundrum for me that I, I've never really solved it. But at the same time, I honestly haven't really cared enough to solve it. And maybe I should care enough. I don't know. But um, at the end of the day, I don't know if taking money from Bezos is overall better for society because I and giving it to somebody who, quote unquote, needs it. Because I think what it allows for is that individual to not suffer the consequences of their own actions, for one. It does not give them incentives to do better with their life. And and I think that that's bad for society as a whole. So, so if 1% of people, hypothetically, controlled 99.9% of all the resources, that to me is a bad result. 
Like that is not okay. And I don't care how hard those 1% of people worked. It's not moral for that society to be structured in that way. Right. But society, Oh, go ahead. I thought you were done. No. Do you, do you agree with that? Or is that fine? No, no. I think, I think that the reason why they have the money that they do is because they've made people better off just by making the money that they did. And that's a, a, and that's one of the pillars also. I think you're jumping back to the real world and I'm trying to get you into my hypothetical. (laughs) Yeah. In my hypothetical where 1% of people control 99.9% of all resources that to me is the French revolution and we should cut off their heads. Hmm. Do you not agree with that? And I don't give a shit about their individual rights. If they've effectively enslaved a 99% of the population quote, because they earned it end quote in my (laughs) hypothetical universe where that, those are the facts on the ground. I don't care how they came up with that much money. It's not an ethical society and they can be, they can be killed and their resources taken. <laughs> so I, I would say that it depends on how they got that 1%, right? And that's the limit to how – that's the limit as far as I would go. It's funny because me and Kelly actually watched uh, Batman, uh, the, dark, uh, the Dark Knight last night, the one with the Joker in it. Mm-hmm. There, There's this scene where they talk about morals, and it's because there's this kind of uh, – um, moral dilemma that's going on throughout the whole thing of whether or not somebody is going to do the right thing. And one of the characters basically says that doing the right thing is to, is to have a a set of morals and to not violate those morals. And the reason why I think that's important is because I think it's an, I don't allow in my set of morals, sacrificial animals, or I don't allow people to become sacrificial animals because I feel like that is immoral. On the other hand, I feel like if money is taken inappropriately, it should be returned no matter what the cost is to the person that took it immorally. And I actually have an example of that where I feel like money should be taken from somebody, which is Bernie Madoff. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you ever followed that case, but one thing that absolutely infuriated me about that was that he took all that money from people by deception Mm. and he became filthy rich because of it when he was found out and um uh he went to court and lost the court battle uh, and was convicted he had to return all those funds Mm. except for a small amount do you know what that amount was for no so his wife and and child children his family had already become a uh acclimated to this life of luxury. <laughs> yeah. Chris, and Chris Rock has a bit about this. Yeah. So they ruled that she got to keep, it, it seems like in my memory, it was millions of dollars of money that was taken immorally from other people, but she had grown accustomed to that lifestyle. Right. <laughs> so somehow that uh, magically granted that money to be okay for her to keep yeah, to so- me. She would have been out in the street on a cardboard box. I don't give a shit, right? I was, that money was taken immorally. Yeah, it's theft. And you right. and I agree theft is wrong. Right. So fast forward to Bezos. In a world that's free and based upon individual rights, in my opinion, trade is how people interact with each other. And any trade, if it's not mutually beneficial to both parties, would not be entered into. If you have a choice. 
That's true. And I, I do know that there's a lot of advocates out there for whether or not you have a choice to enter into these things. Um, yeah. If the but, job markets, if the reality of the job market is that the only, I'm not saying it is right now. I'm saying hypothetically, I try to get a job and all the jobs are paying $1 an hour, right? Mm-hmm. I can't possibly live on that, but those are the only jobs that are available and I can eat McDonald's cheeseburgers and not starve. Another hypothetical. Then that I've been forced into that job, even though, yes, I chose to take the job. I could have not taken the job and died, <laughs> but it's <laughs> coercion. It's, it's financial coercion of if you, if you have a system where the only options that people have on the ground are such that they all suck, right? That's not freedom. The freedom to be poor and screwed by society that's not equitable. Well, that's an interesting point. I don't really know how uh, taking from one person and giving to another alleviates that concern. Well, so and, can, go ahead. Can I jump to my scenario again? Oh, sure. 1% of people control 99.9% of the wealth. And you said that it would depend on how they got that money. Uh-huh. And I don't give a shit how they got that money. <laughs> it is wrong, and they can't keep it. And the 99% of people are correct in beheading them so there we disagree like you care how they got the money so just to be clear here you don't even care how you extract the money from them you literally think it's morally okay to kill them if to they, take it if and redistribute they won't it. yeah if they're letting 10 million people starve i don't care how they got the money it's not okay to let 10 million people starve uh i mean that's interesting i i guess in that hypothetical i would say that i would not I would not partake of it. I would not participate in any of that. I would definitely say that any of that would be immoral to take the so life of another person. If your family is starving, it's immoral to take bread from the rich person. Uh, I think it's immoral to take bread, and I think it's virtuous to make bread. <laughs> but if you don't have the if you don't have the ingredients and the way to make bread. And the only way you and your family can stay alive is to take bread. To me, take the bread. That's my ethical system. Yeah, and, and as far as as far as that goes, I, I guess I would say that. Um, and there was a movie about this not too long ago. Uh, actually, I guess it was a while ago, probably like twenty twenty five years ago. With I think it was, had Denzel Washington in it, where his his child had cancer and needed like a heart something or other. And he didn't have the money for it, so he broke into the. He took his child to the hospital. Is this ringing any bells? And he, he since he couldn't pay for it, he basically forced the doctors yeah, to he, do it. Then he pulled a gun in the hospital. Yeah, and yeah. forced them to do the surgery and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So that is indigent, I guess, kind of circumstances. Uh, do I think it's immoral for him to do that? Man, I think the stuff like that's a tough question, right? I I feel like. Um, is it? If you were starving, if your family was starving, and there's bread behind a plate of glass, so there's and you two have diff- no other options. So there's two different questions here. Do I think it's more for them to take it and give it to their family? Um, actually, there's multiple questions here. I, I would say that you probably you have a, a responsibility to provide for your family, yeah. right? But I do think that the government actually has the responsibility to protect the individual rights of others. So because Denzel Washington broke into that hospital, 
um, and did that, he should also suffer the consequences for those actions and he should go to jail. Right. Yeah. I think that that's also moral for a society to do that to him, even though I feel like it wasn't morally apprehensible for him to do that. Right. Yeah. I do feel like it would have become morally apprehensible if he would have actually murdered somebody in the process. I also do feel like it would have been morally uh, reprehensible if um, other events would have happened. Um, But at the end of the day, I do think it was okay for him to do that. But that doesn't mean I should change the structure of society and say that he shouldn't be punished for it either. You see what I'm saying? That's kind of the difference between, I guess, what we're saying is that, and I don't know exactly uh, what in your hypothetical situation, what 99.9% control is like, um, like, do they just have 99% 99 99.9% of the money in the bank or do they just have, do they say, well, so you remember how like the railroads used to operate? Not, uh, not rail. Maybe it was railroads. I don't know, but I know it was mining companies, how, um, they had like their own money and they kind of controlled the yeah. economy as associated with it. Yeah. The factory store, you had to buy everything there. Your housing was through them. Your everything was through them. It, yeah. yeah. And in those situations, it seemed like there was no other opportunities and, and, and people had to, you know, like walk slouched over for miles before their shift even started. And, and, you know, the mining company provided all their meals and, and food and, you know, uh, they even controlled the currency and all that stuff. So I've actually, I think that there's two sides to look at that. Um, but what I can say is that I don't think it's right for private organizations to control that part of society. So yes, in a sense, I would say that if they literally control it and it's not about individual rights, it's about what they dictate to individuals, then I would say, yes, the, the they have a right to take by force their what is rightfully deserved what's right rightfully owed to them as individuals All right, let, let me let me make the example even more extreme <laughs> we're on the moon there are no natural resources and there's one guy with all the food for 100 people and he says oh nope sorry i'm keeping all this food to myself <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I would think that people have a right to um, take it. I, I definitely wouldn't say that that is a moral way to get currency and 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 trade and interact with people in general. No, uh, yeah, no. I'm, I'm uh, just in in this in this extreme example mm-hmm. on the moon. There is no other food. <laughs> One person has all the food that was supposed to be for all a hundred people. And he's decided that, nope, he's not sharing the food anymore. All this food is for this one person. To me, it's like, oh, okay, well, you're going to go take the food. And if you have to kill that guy to take the food, you'd kill the guy to take the food. Because in my ethics, it's like, well, it's not okay for the individual rights of one person to kill 99 people. Mm -hmm. It is better for 100 people or even 99 people if that one guy got killed to live than for one person to live. Yeah. That's and, how the algebra works for me. Oh, right. And, and, and I get that. And do, do you agree with me or you uh, I agree? I guess on I the just, moon. <laughs> a hundred uh, people on the moon. <laughs> I, I agree. I think that, um, I, I hate to kind of make it, uh, more simple than it should be. 
what I what I mean by that is is that um, I do think that how wealth is created, as long as it's done in a moral way, generally speaking, just because somebody else needs a specific resource does not validate uh, the murder or killing or anything like that. And it does, it certainly doesn't validate the government um, taking by force from that individual when it should, when the government should be about protecting individual rights. Uh, at least that's kind of the way I perceive it. And that's kind of the moral foundation that yeah. I kind of live everyday things on. Well, right. And I, I agree with, with you in principle, but mm-hmm. I also don't think taxation is theft. So I don't know if you think taxation is theft or not, but how I feel about it is we should have a progressive income tax and the higher you go up the income uh, tree, the those bands of income get higher, get taxed at higher, higher rates because as long as people are homeless, that's not okay as a society. And we should put those people in homes yeah. and not in prison, which costs way more money. Like we spend way more money putting people in prison than we do if just giving them housing is my understanding. Well, that's true. And I think that generally things are about a trade-off to me. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it always works for me and my brain. It, like it's not a matter of how much we spend on prisons for me. It's how much does it cost society to let a specific person out of prison can, compared to how much it costs to keep them in prison. Mm-hmm. So if it costs me for the sake of simplicity, a hundred dollars a year to keep them in prison because they're evil people. But if I let them out, it's going to cost $10 million because he's a serial killer and he kills people at will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you should keep them in prison, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, I, I think there are people in supermax or death row or whatever that deserve to be there. Yeah. So I, I guess, um, taking people off the street because they're homeless and throwing them in prison isn't the right answer for me either. Uh, that's kind of morally reprehensible. Uh, at the same time, I do think that that generally speaking, governments and bureaucracy are a drain on the economy, and they're only they're they're a necessary evil, and and that goes for cops. Uh, you know, like in an ideal world, we would not have pieces of crap out there that we needed cops for, and we wouldn't need laws to tell us hey that's that's wrong for you to do that to another person and therefore we're going to throw you in prison for that right right uh, those type of things are a heavy burden for societies to bear and that's why we actually have the taxation system right the government actually doesn't really produce anything or do anything of value that improves our lives and if you say we're going to take money from people to provide them with services in return i agree with that but taking money from them and giving the, that money to somebody else is not a service in return. That's just, I know better to do with your money, with your money than what you do. And therefore I'm going to take it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I feel like that that's kind of like a, not the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I like, I like roads and I like public schools and, um, libraries and, um, NPR and, you know, all of these things that the tax money, uh, get, gets piled into, um, like NASA, you know, the, what is it? Less than half a percent of our GDP taxation is spent on NASA. And I think we do a lot of cool stuff with NASA. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I like that, you know, there's 
large swaths of taxation where I don't like how the money is being spent. Yeah, I mean, so, those... so we did. So I, I think we did find an example where individual rights aren't paramount at all times. I, I hear what you're saying about your pillar of ethics and individuals have rights, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the best uh, argument against the utilitarianism framework that I usually come from in my ethical system. Yeah. If, if one person has to die to save a hundred, there's no question. It's easy math. Like there's, you know, boom, you know, that one person is done. Um, and that is scary if you're that one person or your family is that one person or whatever. And these, these hypotheticals like almost never happen in the real world. So I don't think it's, it's actually, uh, the the critiques of utilitarianism on uh, individual rights grounds I don't think actually happen in the real world so I think it's just easier to see the math the way that I do and I think that the whatever set of laws you have if the result is a society where more people are prospering that's a better society and apparently a better set of laws <laughs> so but yeah a if you take an extreme, um, ah, crap. What's the political party called? Where you uh, help the conser- fascist? No, the conservative political party where you have extremely small government. Oh, that gets. Uh, uh, see, this is why I don't talk for a living because my brain is Swiss <laughs> cheese. I, I, libertarian, I sorry, libertarian. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is this is why I program computers and I don't do anything about speaking or using words for a living. Um, so the libertarian uh, mindset, I think, I resonate with a lot in terms of, hey, yeah, none of us want, and the police officers don't want, you know, to show up at the scenes of domestic violence. I mean, it's hell for everybody, right? right. So, yeah, they would love to not have a job, Um you know, firefighters would love for there not to be house fires that kill people, right? Or heart attacks that kill people, I assume, right? But, you know, these are these are costs that we bear um, because that's reality. Um, but it, a, a lot of what I'm concerned about in libertarian uh, mindset is that I think most libertarians come from a, pers- a, a place where they think, oh, okay, well, I made it, you know, I worked hard and I made it. So everyone else can. And like last time we were talking about the future of work and when everyone else can't because they're humans and you're simply unemployable as a human being or the scenarios where, you know, there's only so much food on the moon (laughs) or Elysium where 1% of people are living, you know, in this celestial thing. Um, you know, all of these things concern me uh, very much that we get them right now to the extent that we're not already 100 years, you know, behind the curve, but that we um, we get them right now. So as the future of work eliminates millions of drivers from their jobs, that we have a system where it's OK to just be a human and it's OK to be a billionaire. You know, so if you still have billions of dollars and you're not Bernie Madoff, you didn't steal that money, you you know, quote, earned it, end quote. Um, great. You know, and I don't have any concerns about that. You know, people can have billions of dollars and I don't, I'm not worried about it. And I'm not personally looking for any money from people. 
Um, what I want is a society where it's structured such that if I make $10 million or you do great, fantastic, but there's going to be an income tax level, which supports making sure all of our schools are well-funded and all of our roads are repaired and all of our bridges aren't collapsing and, you know, whatever set of services we want government to, to provide, because I don't think that a libertarian universe where we privatize all of the roads is, is going to, uh, be very helpful. So like OPPD and all these other monopolies that are um, structurally monopolies that are government run, uh, I think those monopolies are public goods, public services uh, because of their nature. And we just want them to work. We just want everyone to have clean drinking water. End of story. You know, everyone turns on a tap and they have clean drinking water. And I think those baseline uh, societal things are things that government should should and should provide, and whatever level of taxation we need to make those things possible, that's a, a level of taxation that I'm comfortable with. Including, if I get sued into oblivion because my dog bites somebody, and then I get hit by a car, and now I can't work anymore because I'm physically handicapped and mentally, you know, handicapped, that that society takes care of me, you know? So that's, that's kind of the world that I would like to live in. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know where you're at with all of that stuff, but that that's a level of taxation I'm comfortable with. Um, because I come from this, you know, upper middle class or whatever position where I can afford more taxes. If they told me my tax rates going up because they need it for the schools, I'd be like, Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. Public schools are important. Let's, let's pay for that. So yeah. Well, I I think that those are interesting topics. I I feel like it's like um so I would also uh, let me start off by saying I am not a libertarian. I actually am anti-libertarian. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> so and this is uh so I think that individual rights should be based on reason and reality. And, and, you know, I think we, we talk about these hypothetical situations a lot of times, and I think that those are good ways to, to think about the morality of different concepts and maybe isolate certain concepts and say, well, yeah, I agree with that or not. But at the end of the day, I think that um, individual rights based on reason and reality <laughs> does not technically jive with the libertarian point of view. And that's because I feel like libertarianism is a conclusion in and of itself that should be drawn based upon individual rights, based on in, right, uh, reason and reality. And, and the reason why I think that's an important distinction is because um, I can't, and I, we might have even talked about this before, like I, I, I have purchased this property, right? And we're next door neighbors. I don't think that I have a right to assemble a jet engine outside and point the exhaust at your house and run that engine Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's my shit and I have a right to decide anything I want to do with my shit. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be a libertarian principle. If you think about it, libertarians come up with a, a, an extremely wide range of rights that they they think that they have. And that's because they're not basing things on individual rights based on reason and reality. They're basing the rights on the concept of liberty, which is a conclusion not a right. <laughs> right? Mm. So 
you'll see libertarians on the side of abortion. They'll be libertarians against abortion, right? There'll be libertarians on the side of, uh, 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 copyright laws and and libertarians against copyright laws. I, I think that's a kind of a a non hot issue to even mention. You know, like why they even come up with these things. I see libertarians that say, "Well, we shouldn't have copyright laws because they created it and it's out there, and 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 there's no reason to uh, prohibit someone from taking that and using it because once they have it in their possession, they have a right to use it. Somebody that a libertarian that would say the otherwise is that, well, they came up with it in a society that guarantees the right of sole use for that item. Had they not, if society had not guaranteed their free use for that, or their, their, uh, copyrighted use of that item, they may not have brought it into the public sphere. Uh, WD 40 is a good example of that. Right. Like what was in their product for years and years and years, one of the best kept secrets known or not known. Right. And and that's because uh, they didn't want to release it because they figured it would be easily copied. Right. So it was it was exceptionally guard guarded. KFC uh, original recipes the same way. Uh, on the other hand, some the only way that somebody can make money off the achievements that they've done is use copyright laws to release that and then protect that intellectual property. Otherwise they simply wouldn't release it. They just society wouldn't be better off at all for it. Mm. At the end of the day, uh, Liberty in and of itself isn't a good way to look at individual issues and see if you're on the right side or not. And that's why I'm not a libertarian. So the so last time you said that you tend to agree with the Republican Party on financial issues, can you kind of outline for me what what those issues are? Um, like, like what is your if 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 you and I could start a new government tomorrow, what would that look like in terms of what the government's responsible for? So I would say it's actually kind of it might be. It it might actually be easier for me to tell where I disagree with the Republican Party. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Probably even both of us agree on fiscal on this. issues. You mean, or what? on where you disagree with the Republicans on fiscal stuff, or are you talking yeah. about this, oh fiscal stuff? Okay, yeah, yeah. So and I don't even know what the the platform of the Republicans is. No, I don't <laughs> so. either. I so I, I disagree with Republicans when it comes to uh, a general understanding of the application of the Constitution to individual rights. Hmm. So I don't think it's right for Republicans to push for um, religious institutions to be uh, uh, free from paying property taxes because of ridiculous ideas like separation of church and state, right? Hmm. I, I feel like it's uh, it's atrocious that that organization that's over there to our west doesn't have to pay any taxes on the vast land that they owned own because they're a religious organization. I think that that actually places a heavier burden on the rest of the people in that group uh, to compensate for that lack of taxes uh, brought in that I think should be equally borne by people. Mm -hmm. Um, I I disagree, especially with Republicans on any fiscal issue where they give religious exemptions. Um, But that actually applies to Democrats as well. Um, For example, uh, with the COVID-19 restrictions 
and and the the mandate to get a vaccine. I think if it's moral to do a mandate for everybody, then everybody should have a mandate. And you can't do these faith based restriction or exceptions to where oh I believe you know like <laughs> therefore I don't have to get it. Um, the only mm-hmm. way that you should be able to say I shouldn't be able to get it in those cases, if we're going to make a law for everybody, is that. I have this functional reason why I cannot get it, right? Therefore, I'm not getting it. And then the government says, hey, you were right. Your decision not to do that is based on reason and reality. We're not going to force you to do it. Uh, Some individual saying uh, religion gives me an excuse. I'm not going to get it. The government's saying, well, yeah. And there's easy applications of that, right? I, I feel like... If we make a law that says you can't kill somebody, but somebody with a specific religion says, I have a right to kill somebody, they kill them, and then they get off on it scot-free, people would think, well, that's morally reprehensible, right? (laughs) My point is is that if a law is there and it is moral, that everybody should follow it regardless of religious convictions. Otherwise, the law simply shouldn't be there. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think that Republicans would vastly disagree with me on that, Missy. <laughs> you gonna chew that cable? What are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, I wanted to stop her before she ripped off the microphone from your your desk there. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what I think about vaccine mandates and religious exceptions for vaccine mandates. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, to be clear, I actually I'm pro vaccine, but anti mandates. For the same reasons that I'm okay with the woman having the right to have an abortion. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I've. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Vaccine. Do I think vaccine mandates for public employees, or sorry, for government employees? If you're a government employee. Do I think you should be mandated to have a vaccine? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go yes. Um, yeah, I, I think if you have a, a government job, you're being paid by taxpayers, you're going to be in all kinds of dis- different situations where you're interacting with the public and the public has a right to not die from COVID or whatever. So vaccine mandates, like, you know, when you, I mean, you were in the army, when you showed up, they shot you full of a bunch of shit. Right. And you didn't have any say about that. Right. When you were going to be deployed. Well, I did have a a say, I did have a say in the sense that I could have said, I don't want it, but then I wouldn't have been allowed to be deployed or so there was one that I actually volunteered for, um, which was the smallpox vaccine vaccination. Uh, they didn't, I, at least I don't remember them at the time forcing all soldiers to get the smallpox vaccination. Uh, they said, Hey, do you want to get this? Uh, go head over here and get it. If, uh, if you don't want to do it, I, it seemed like that was not required. I don't even know why. Um, so if they said, Hey, you're getting deployed to Afghanistan and here's the nine shots you're going to take. And you said, Nope, that seventh one, I'm not getting it. Then what happens to you in the army? 
uh, you, you'd probably be kicked out. Uh, I know that that's one of the things that was actually holding up the, uh, one of my friends that joined the army uh, with me. Yeah, he was actually going to get deployed to Iraq, and I, it seemed like he didn't want to take all the vaccines. I'll have to ask him about that for sure, but um, so he, you're, he you're, got medically discharged. Oh, medical discharge. Yeah. He didn't get dishonorably discharged, but of the of the whole army because yeah. he had volunteered to go in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what if a so, so if the draft comes back? Huh. So what if you're a forest firefighter that works for the government in the middle of Wyoming? Should they be required? Well, when you're out in the woods, you're not going to kill anybody with your whatever <laughs> you've got. But you're also but you're also working in the bunkhouse with all these other employees. But if they, no, because they can still carry it. Right. So, so you can transmit it. So even if I got vaccinated and someone else didn't, and I was breathing the air with them because before you're deployed, you're living in the same thing, waiting for the siren to go off or however it works. Um, yeah. So it's it's not when they're in the woods that I'm worried they're going to transmit it. It's when they're jammed together in the helicopter or the pickup truck or, you know, wherever they're sleeping and they're jammed together. You're putting those people at risk and you're putting the people that you spread it to at risk. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with with mandates for that. If you were stationed on the moon, (laughs) (laughs) then, like, if there was no way you could possibly get it and get anyone else sick in your job, then the mandate makes no sense, right? If it's not possible for you to harm somebody, intentionally or unintentionally, then, yeah, the government shouldn't force you to do that. But that's, you know, there's no actual jobs that work like that. So say you're in the Navy and you're going to serve aboard a submarine and you're going to be deployed for four months. It's either on the boat or it's not, right? So if everyone's tested before they get on the boat, then theoretically it's not possible for you to hurt anybody in the Navy if you're a submariner on a deployment. And you're all guaranteed to not have it when you get out. I think because it can't live on services that long. So you're the, you're the COVID safest people on the planet when you come back from a four month submarine deployment (laughs) or astronauts or whatever. Right. So yeah, in those extreme cases, but for 99, you know, 99% of the time government employees are in grocery stores and they're in, you know, part of their job if they're traveling, well, if they just have an office job, what if they work from home? Say you work from home, do I think the government should mandate at-home workers with desk jobs to have, I don't know, what do you think? Well, in all those situations that you're encountering, do they have an option to not take it? Or like, well, that's what a mandate is, right? It's forcing you to take it. They're forcing you to, but, you know, like there's no, if you say, no, I'm not going to take it, you just you just have to find a new job. In your oh, case, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. There's not like jail time or... You know, like I think in Australia, for people that are resisted vaccines, they, you know, put them in encampments 
<laughs> you know, like, well, I think yeah, crowded them up. I mean, would you be for that? Or if you're drafted you? into the army, right, and then you refuse anything, you can go to the brig, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, there is some play for that. I mean, if you volunteered to go into the army. They can medically discharge you if you refuse vaccines. Apparently, is what you told me. Uh, yeah, and that's what that's my understanding. If I could be drafted in, and then you refuse to get a vaccine. They could just hold you down and shoot in your yeah. arm and ship you off. So right? let's say, <laughs> let's say we made the draft. Like in your own scenario here, let's say we made the draft and we made it completely fair, in the sense that they did not look at your sex or anything. They did not look at your health. They didn't your look age. at your, your, <laughs> your current situation, yeah. right? So let's say they... Four-year-olds and 85-year-olds. <laughs> they said, we need to do the off. draft and we need a 1,000 people or else 10 million people are going to die. Yeah. So they draft these people and they realize that about 50 of them are pregnant women. And they they decide, well, you can't be pregnant. So we're going to make you get an abortion. Would you be okay with that? Well, I'm not okay with the draft. So right out of the gate, you. Oh, I'm not okay with the draft either. But as far as like, I guess the root of the question is you don't even have to necessarily answer that one. Is what, what, um, in the event of a draft, where do you draw the line with what should be allowed and shouldn't be allowed? Um, for me, it's it's very towards the side of not force, but that would kind of exclude the draft itself right so well, yeah and the military <laughs> is all about force right right that's its purpose so at the end of the day i would say i am like i said pro vaccine but anti-mandate generally speaking and uh you know like i kind of look at it like people that want to f- participate fully in society um and need to follow the science they need to be like well vaccines you know once they're released and tested are generally safe and good for you and uh, i certainly don't think that people should be coerced into doing something just to protect a couple people that literally can't do it it seems uh morally reprehensible for me to force that on people (laughs) the military is certainly a different situation um I mean, some people can't get vaccinated because they've, they're immunocompromised. Yeah. And like laws around peanut allergies, the one person out of 10,000 or however many it is that has a massive reaction to it, right? You're putting them at risk by everyone not getting vaccinated and killing the thing off. So, so for me, ethically, putting anyone at risk ever is not okay when I can just go get a jab. But if in an alternate universe there were all of these valid concerns about the efficacy and safety of some future vaccine for some other thing, then for me, yeah, mandated vaccines are way more questionable. But after millions of people have had it, and the statistics are so clear, I don't see the argument anymore. And so if you want a job from taxpayers' money, being forced to get the vaccine seems fine to me. 
Yeah, and I, again, I, I'm actually fine with even a specific employer, private or government, to say you need it, um, and then saying, well, if you don't get it, then you can leave um, without punishment to yourself. I mean, you have to find a new job and all that. Yeah, I, I don't see it. I, I, well, I guess what I mean by mandate is there's punitive damages done to an individual because they say, no, I'm not getting it. Like we throw you in jail for a year or we say, Hey, we're going to tax you or we're going to make you pay to get a test. <laughs> right. I, I, I think that all that stuff is just absolutely ridiculous. And, and I guess I haven't really heard an argument for it. Uh, yeah. So I've I'm, of- I'm in an employment situation with my current skills that, whether or not an individual employer mandates or doesn't mandate, like I, I tell a commute, so none of this applies to me, but if I had to work in an office environment and one employer said, oh, yeah, we're mandating vaccines and you have to show paperwork that you did it, and another employer across the street said, nope, we're not mandating vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. And I had the freedom to just be like, oh, okay, never mind. I'm going to go work across the street then, right? then that to me is an ideal scenario because mm-hmm. everybody can do what they want. And if you want to die from a disease, feel free. And I'm going to live, I'm going to work where I know that I'm not getting it from people probably, but well, I don't know anything about their private lives, you know, so who knows? They could be partying all night with a room full of people. Nobody's wearing masks and be carrying all kinds of stuff. <laughs> And coming in and, you know, spreading it around. But anyway, so I'm I'm going to get the vaccine and I'm going to, yeah, I don't know. I, I was at a thing two days ago where I was the only person indoors. That's not true. There were about five of us wearing masks in about 100 people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this feels really weird because I'm, I'm wearing these, you know, filthy clothes from running the dog and I'm <laughs> indoors at like a... So, like, I, I came for the talk, you know, and I was just going to sit in the back of the room and watch the talk, but it's a whole panel of people, and everybody else was, like, having social hour, like like COVID had never happened. So they're all in each other's faces talking over drinks and stuff and laughing, and I'm like, wow, this is strange. I haven't seen that in two years. So, <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of people have just moved on with their lives at this point. They got vaccinated or didn't, and they're just like, ah, fuck it. It is what it is, and we're back to back to life. So, yeah. well, I'm not even sure how we got on this path, but no, I, I, I will say that got on any path. <laughs> yeah, so those what? mandates have actually. I think that there are costs to that. You know, like um, associated with allowing people the freedom to leave, uh, even in the military, if they allowed something like that. Uh, I don't even know what to think about the draft idea, but uh, even in the place where I work, you know, they were, since we were a government contract, when Biden did the mandate stuff with anybody that was a contract, had a contract with the government mm-hmm. that kind of rolled us into there. He did that even after I voluntarily did it. Right. But there was a couple people that, you know, that one of them for religious reasons and one, um, for, I guess on principle, he didn't want to get it partly because he already had COVID. So he didn't see a point in getting a vaccine and then when somebody said, well, yeah, you have to do it. I mean, you know how human beings are. They're just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mm. have to. So, so he, um, at any rate, the first one um, accepted a job somewhere else. And um, 
right after he accepted the job, they actually took, moved the mandate up to like February or whatever it was. And then, you know, recently I think that the Supreme court said, well, you you can't just blanket do that. (laughs) It has to be applicable to the job, you know? So then it, it became null and void. Right. And I I don't even think the company requires anymore. I, I could be wrong on that, but um, the other guy, uh, one of the reasons why he left was partly because of the vaccine mandate. And both of those are good people, you know, that really benefited the company a lot. So the fact that the company said, we're going to mandate this, it didn't just cost them, you know, the time and stuff to get a new job. I mean, it, it cost the, the company too, because now they got to train new people to do that. They lost the, the human capital that those people are going to be taking with them. Um, All right, but they could have saved lives. Uh, they could. Um, I don't think that really I, everybody else in our office would have been vaccined, had the vaccine. They would have been the only two. It, it'd be interesting to see if they really could have, but they could also save lives by choosing not to drive to work, potentially. <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, it, there are measured levels of risk that everybody does that involves risk, not just to themselves, but other people. A lot of times we don't even talk about that, but that is true. You know, that that's kind of a part of life. Um, yeah, like work from home could save the lives of employees. Yeah. And, as you know, especially – so we worked from home for a year and a half where I didn't go into the office for like a single day. <laughs> or maybe it was a year I didn't go in there for a single day. Um, and everything worked just fine. It didn't it, – it seemed unreasonable to me that they wanted us to come back to the office anyways – and and that's uh, the funny thing is is that as a result of covid there's been a lot of employers out there that say hey we can do this all the time now and the second guy that left our company because of the mandates actually found a company that not only wasn't going to mandate him they actually stuck with the work from home policy which was perfect for him and his family at the end of the day there's there's consequences no matter what we choose there's consequences to mandates or not mandates Mm-hmm. And I, I, I definitely don't argue against that. Sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any idea how we got on that topic at all. Yeah, I don't know either. Um. So, so, so looking back at my notes here, <laughs> um, th- so we did agree that someone's individual rights on the moon when they're trying to hoard food for a hundred people aren't as important as a hundred people eating. True. We agreed on that. Or did we not agree on that? Well, I guess uh, it seems like I remember the situation that it it was more. I think I said it was morally okay to redistribute the food in that case, right? Oh, I don't know. I might have to go back and listen to what I well, said. Well, I don't. I don't know what you said. So just think, of, think <laughs> about remember. it again now. Are, <laughs> are we agreeing on this now or not? Well, do you think since, it's okay or do you not think it's okay? Since that's like a weird situation, maybe I can propose a different one. Let's well, say, are you going to give me this one or not? Um, so what? Uh, say the question again. Okay. There's a okay. hundred people on the moon uh-huh. and they had food for a hundred people on the moon. But one person has decided, nope, all this food's mine now. Okay. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll give you that one. It's okay to kill them and take the food. Yeah, well, it's, it's okay to kill him if you have to kill him. Like, like, yeah. First, you would say no, George. That's not okay. 
<laughs> you yeah. need to give us the food, please. <laughs> but there are trade. Even then, there are trade offs to that. What if he was like the only one that could perform heart surgeons that were heart surgery that was on the moon? Yeah, you, know, but you you're basically die killed from this guy before you need heart surgery. So. I know, yeah, but the point is, is that uh, uh, when you when you kill him, you don't need you don't have surgeon, a heart surgery. You're dead. <laughs> and I'm not even saying that. Uh, I disagree with okay. you know killing him, taking food. So we agree. On the moon, if one person has all the food, then it's that is an unethical situation, and up to and including killing that person if you have to, that is okay. Mm-hmm. That we're both agreeing that that's the moral situation. Yes. Okay. So in my Elysium situation, where one percent of people have ninety nine point nine percent of the resources, that to me is untenable. That is slavery of all of these people that have have to do all this work to live whereas this 1% of people is controlling everything and that's that's not okay and an uprising is completely ethically uh valid if that's what it takes to get to get that redistribution to happen well as a side note to that if you've kind of put yourself into a situation where you, you know an uprising is imminent and and you know that the uprising is coming because you're literally <laughs> abusing. Yeah, give them some shit. Everybody, I mean, to some extent, I do think that, well, maybe they have it coming at that point. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's called Pitchfork Economics. There's a whole podcast on this. Oh, is there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a book and a podcast series called Pitchfork Economics. It's really good. Yeah. They, they take all the um like like I listen to a few different econ like econ talks, another one of my favorites. But anyway, they just they're constantly interviewing authors about economic things, books people have written or, you know, current situations in the news or whatever. And one of them is called Pitchfork Economics and it's very flaming left hay because it's run by a billionaire. And the, the, so the billionaires on the show every week or however often they they produce it, and he's like, "Look, I'm trying to wake up my fellow rich people. I'm trying to tell my fellow rich people that eventually this shit is going to bite us, and it's going to be bad for us. <laughs> and what we need to do is do a better job as having a healthy society so that we don't get you know killed. So he, he doesn't think he's literally going to get killed tomorrow, but the the whole point is that you can't have extreme." Um, the, the extreme form of of capitalism that that we have, where the safety nets all suck, um, the, that was an overstatement. But yeah, there there are a lot of ways in which they talk about the economics of the ultra wealthy versus everyone else, and how the system is rigged towards their benefit. People uh, at the top through no hard work of their own can easily stay there. <laughs> Whereas people at the bottom through infinite hard work can't get up. Not always, but the vast majority of the time the system is rigged in this way is that if you're already rich, that's the number one predictor of staying rich, no matter what you do or don't do with your lifetime, whether you sit and watch Netflix for 80 years or you work your ass off starting 1,500 different companies, the highest predictor of whether or not you're going to be economically successful is whether or not you came from economic success. So, Is, is that actually true? I don't know. Oh, because I, I actually I understood that to be different. 
I, I actually so, understood the highest predictor of uh, whether or not you're rich is based on uh, like a, a combination of three things. Uh, one is your IQ. Uh, two is how hard you work and your dedication to your job and, and that actual path. And, and there was some, uh, one other thing that I can't remember. Um, well, zip code was a big one. Oh yeah. Uh, but, uh, as far as like a causal relationship, as far as like, uh, how the, your attitude and abilities as a person, uh, brings revenue and, and makes you that way. Right. So like, um, me and my brother and sisters were all born in the same zip code, but we all have different attributes and traits about us. And each one of us, even though we came from the same zip code, have taken vastly different life choices and made vastly different life choices. <laughs> um, and I would say that between us as a family, um, those two things right there have been a more deciding factor than our zip code, which has remained constant, right? Hmm. So, I mean, I know what you're, I know the point you're getting at. I mean, if you come from a poor neighborhood, you're probably going to stay poor or whatever. Yeah. The, the correlations I, we'll, we'll have to pick like very specific things and talk through very yeah. specific stuff. Um, instead of just my five bullet points here of like all kinds of stuff. Oh yeah. Well, I actually, actually, I was completely prepared to talk about affirmative action, but we might have to, oh. we might have to, we might have to pick that up. Can we do I, it in 30 minutes? Cause pro- we're at an hour and a half, right? So. <laughs> uh, well, I seriously doubt that we could give it any justice, but if you want to give it a shot, <laughs> we can we can at least start it and maybe have a to be continued. Maybe I don't know. Uh, um, affirmative action. Okay, so my third bullet point here is Jay thinks affirmative action is a necessary evil in some cases. Chris thinks it's always racism? Question mark. Pretty much, yeah. Um. Walter Williams, Suffer No Fools. This is a documentary that's available right now, streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, says Jay is wrong. <laughs> and Jay feels very uncomfortable disagreeing with an African-American on this topic, smiley face, it says. According to Walter, affirmative action has been doing more harm than good since 1965. So the first thing I would say is you shouldn't listen to me about affirmative action. You should go watch black people talk about affirmative action and native American people talk about affirmative action. And, uh, you know, don't talk to a cis head white <laughs> dude <laughs> about affirmative action. What, what else would you like to talk about with, uh, with affirmative action? <laughs> well, I guess I would start off by disagreeing that you shouldn't talk to white people about it. Um, I think that you should talk to everybody about it. Uh, because I think that people have something genuine to say about it. One thing that was interesting is that we had a book club um, where we're uh, uh, the sum of us, I think was the book that we were talking about this in. And uh, they opened the book off. Uh, uh, they start the book off by talking about one of the Supreme court cases where it was decided that affirmative action was okay for an elite law school. And uh, one of the things that, uh, the author said, and she's a black woman, um, was that she immediately discounted the white woman who brought the case to the Supreme court and basically said, Oh, this is so funny. White people basically think that they have a hard time. Oh my God. Like basically saying, Oh, look, this person's white. We don't care what they say essentially is what she said. And I think that that's 
reprehensible. I, uh, just the thought of being, uh, I'm not saying that's what you're saying. I, I, I get what you're saying. Oh, I'm but, saying don't listen to me specifically. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> just, all white people can't have cringing right. arguments and thoughts about this. Right. Or even have a, a, a valid complaint that they've been discriminated against. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, possible. I just don't, I don't think it's the preponderance of cases. <laughs> I think it's possible. So in, in some ways I, I agree and some I disagree with one thing that's really, I'm sorry, when you say disagree, disagreeing with what? Oh, uh, about, um, uh, white people not having the preponderance of, uh, cases where they've been discriminated against. Oh, um, in this country, uh, what I'm trying to say is, is that, um, I agree in the sense that it's not the majority of people with discrimination cases, uh, but that happens to just be statistically true. And I don't think that the other other side is that uh, African-Americans have the most stories today about being discriminated against. I think that what is going on with affirmative action is that uh, black people are basically getting black privilege <laughs> if I don't get crucified by anybody listening to this podcast for saying that. <laughs> um, but uh, because of that black privilege, it's not actually white people that pay the price. It's it's other minorities. The, the, the one that you uh, brought up about the Supreme Court case where it's going back to the Supreme Court happens to be that it's the Asian American uh, population who feel like they're being discriminated against. Um by affirmative action laws because affirmative action and even in the case that uh, um, that one book quoted um, it talked about uh, specific minorities um, and reasons why it's okay to give specific minorities an advantage and um, specific individual minorities or specific so essentially what was happening is that the law school was um, if they they were an elite law school and if they kept the bar where they kept it for everybody only about 3% of black people would be admitted but um what they did was is made it to where black minorities uh could be their minority status could be a factor considered to whether or not they get in or not irrespective of their previous performance up to that point. So like if they didn't do good on the LSAT or they didn't have good grades or whatever, um, the fact that they're black could make up the difference and they could get in. So in other words, they were lowering the bar for black people and keeping the bar up really high for everybody else. The problem is that they only admit a certain amount of people um, into the law school. So if they were letting 10% of black people in that were below the bar. They are giving them black privilege. You could say by being able to be below the bar and still getting into the school, but those slots have to be given up by somebody. And the majority of the time, the people that feel like they get really shafted on the deal is Asian Americans. And the reason why they feel like they get shafted is because Statistically, they they compete with people that are like ten IQ points above themselves, and they they can do that because they spend twice as much time as white people studying, 
<laughs> to do these entry-level tests and prepare for school and do the classwork, and they devote a lot of time and effort into doing these things. And then to see them, to say to them, we're going to turn you away so we can get this specific minority in here seems very unjust. And and recently there's been a lot of uh, individuals who kind of suffer from this going around universities saying, we just want to be treated equally mm-hmm. and fairly. And, and I, I agree with that. Yeah. But so all the way back to the beginning, I think the first thing you said is that more, more white people, for example, are being affected. Well, I think that's just statistically true. Like if you have any minority population, so like in Nebraska, it's Nebraska is a state, 95% white or whatever it is. And Omaha is a city, 90% white or whatever it is. And of, of course, if you employ affirmative action on 10% of the population, the majority of people affected by that decision are the majority of people, right? So you have 90% of people, white people being affected by not getting in. Whereas you have a much smaller number of cases of, of African-Americans in this case, getting in due to affirmative action. Right. So that, that's just how the numbers work. Yeah. Anytime you're trying to protect a minority group. Yeah. The majority group has a lot more people that are affected by that decision than the minority group. They are a minority. That's just the math of, (laughs) of being a minority. That's how minorities work. (laughs) Can I, can I clarify what I'm trying to say? So that was just the very first thing is the, uh, but yeah, go ahead. So I, I think the only reason why I say that is because uh, the Asian population is one that I was looking into specifically and in Nebraska or um, in just doing some general research, uh, one related to the new Supreme court case. And then there's other studies done by people that talk about uh, corporate America in the state of California, where it's like this tech heavy industry. So in the first case of the law school, the reason why I was saying that um, Asian Americans probably suffer the most is because let's say you have a hundred applicants. Um, and maybe you have um, a hundred, a hundred white people apply, and you have, you know, like you know, thirty black people, but then you have sixty Asian Americans for whatever reason they want to be law students. So at the end of the day, if you look at the statistics, um, maybe uh, the increase bringing in black people maybe only costs one or two applicants um, or maybe even five, let's say it just takes five people that actually qualified that were white people and said, well, we're not going to allow you in because we need to create space. Right. But let, but let's say that five Asian Americans also were excluded. That's a higher percentage of the Asian Americans being excluded at any given time. than even though maybe it was just, maybe it was even just three three Asian Americans that, that didn't get in. That's a substantial amount, not only of the Asian American population in the country, it's, it's a higher amount of the percentage that applied. And that's kind of what I mean. It seems like collectively they kind of feel the brunt of it. Another thing is the tech industry, uh, especially in the state of California, there's a lot of statistics that show that even though technology and things like that are really dominated by Asian Americans, um, what you see is, is that, a lot of entry level positions are entered into by Asian Americans and they're stuck in those entry level positions while black people 
overwhelmingly are their managers and get speed tracked through the management process. Not white people. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what's really frustrating to them is that what, and, and this is actually one thing that always kind of gets me about feminism is that a lot of times we say, well, look, there's not very many African-Americans in the technology industry, right? Maybe it's on average, like maybe 3% or 5%, but everybody looks at it like human beings are just dice where, you know, you throw a bunch out there and they randomly fall into this nice categorized part where 13% of the population of tech industry is black and, you know, the rest is a perfect mix, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, people don't work like that. They're not random events. They are people that have wishes and desires and different incentives throughout their whole life. And, And when you get something like the tech industry, which is dominated by Asian Americans... Um, I mean, that's not been my experience, but I don't live in California, so. Oh, yeah, and this was actually a surprise to me, too, and I can get you the author. Oh, it's actually this guy right here, Kenny Zhu. Yeah. Um, He's the one that's got We'll link to this book. It's called An Inconvenient, what? Minority. An Inconvenient Minority by. Uh, Kenny Zhu. Kenny, uh, K-E-N-N-Y-X-U. Looks like you're about halfway through that book. Oh, uh, there was actually just a, uh, I was going to. Uh, I'm not, I actually, I barely started it oh. I'm on page like 47 or something. Like that. Um, uh, but I actually have seen this guy uh, interview at other places where he kind of talks about some of this stuff. Um, so it, it just so happens that a lot of these areas that Asian Americans kind of dominate, they are the first ones to kind of be pushed out in order to make the numbers right. Like, let's say if, let's say if everything fell into place and it was just people's own choice and you had a company and it was, um, you know, like, uh, 60% white people, uh, 30% Asian Americans and just 3% black people and then fill in the rest with whatever you want. Right. That's a really extremely high amount of Asian Americans in this population of work group people compared to the rest of the population. So what happens is, is that HR gets involved and they're like, oh, look at our numbers. They aren't adding up to be correct. We need to get black people in here. Right? <laughs> they're underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So then what happens is they get these policies. That sounds like something I would say. Yeah. yeah. Guilty. They, they get these policies that <laughs> actively promote black people and encourage them to come into the industry. Uh and in order to do that, it's like me sending me to preschool. They said, Hey, wait a minute. 99.99% of all preschool teachers are, are females. We need to equalize this, right? Mm. In order for them to get me into being a goddamn preschool teacher, they would have to pay me ridiculously amount of money Mm. to make that change. In other words, there's value in me just being a male, right? Going into the preschool field. I could be terrible, right? <laughs> but, and and the same thing goes for affirmative action. When we see those disparities and we assign it to racial injustice instead of people just making their own choices, and then we try to give value to the underrepresented classes, whatever, and then try to encourage them to come, what happens is, is that the ones that suffer most statistically 
in these industries and which, which we care about or whatever are, at least that's kind of part of what he says is it's Asian Americans. Um, and, and, uh, case in point, you know, like there's 99.99% of all the welders out there and all the plumbers and electricians and all these different hardworking jobs, you know, bricklayers or roofers, they're, they're all men. Why is it that we say, well, look at all the engineers, you know, it's not even that skewed, right? It's like, like 70% men and 30% females. Really? Or something. I'm, I'm just making up numbers. Oh. Actually, I don't know, but it's not, it's not, not my experience. It's not like <laughs> plumbers, right? <laughs> oh, well, well, actually I, I kind of work with a lot of females. Um, oh, good. but maybe it is a little different. I, I mean, in my uh, experience, it is old white dudes. Yeah. But I guess and not, not exclusively, but dominantly we dominate the yeah. environment. I, I guess what his point is, is that there's some that we specifically pull out and we say, Hey, we need to make this one equal. Right. And, and the ones that they tend to pull out are ones that Asian Americans are good at. It, it's, it's engineering. It's the tech field. It's, um, leadership and development things in, in those fields. Right. Uh, we don't say to ourselves, like I said, we, Hey, we need 50% welders that are women, or we need, we only got like 1% black people that are welders. Let's, let's get more <laughs> black welders. You know? Like I've never heard a push for that. Right. Well, there, there's not a lot of Asian American welders and we don't even care about that one. Right. We don't care about balancing the numbers there, but well, we maybe we do care about women welders and we want to get like, why, why wouldn't you try to on-ramp more women welders? Like, why not? Because it's like me in preschool. Why? I don't want to do it. Right. And if, generally if no women, women don't want to do it. That's fine. I'm not right. suggesting we pay them more. I'm just saying. Well, how else would you get them to do it? You'd have, so you'd, you'd want to look at the schooling the, you know, however it is you become a welder. I don't know how that works. You go to Southeast Community College, West of Lincoln, I don't know, well, I don't to, know. to learn welding. Uh, but look at that environment and see, okay, well, is this environment hostile to women? Is there some reason that no women apply to this? Or only one in the last 10 years has applied to this or whatever? I don't know because I've never been in that environment. But I think it's useful to um, talk to, talk, well, if, if I was on faculty, it's useful, I think, to think about, okay, well, why can't more uh, women do welding if they want to do it, you know, and yeah. make sure that there are no barriers to entry. That's all I'd be concerned about. Yeah, and I think that uh, – I think a part of what he's saying too is that generally there's not this big organizational hierarchy over top of a bunch of welders who then say, hey, as a part of our company that we're going to call company Hoopla, whatever – yeah. Hey, wait a minute. We got all these welders and it's 99.9% men. What are we going to do as a company to bring more in? You know, like the structures for welding isn't really set up like that. Yeah. Well, um, what what I think I hear your author saying is that if you target African-Americans in tech for promotion before they're ready for promotion, then you're setting everybody up for failure and that's counterproductive. Yeah. And, which and yeah. I agree with. If you set anybody up for promotion before they're ready for a promotion. Yeah. But but if you're in an environment where say the onboarding sucks, right? And it feels hostile to, you know, 
Pacific Islanders or whatever, for whatever cultural reason, or it feels, you know, if you're, if you're a Muslim, it feels like you're, you know, being shut out or, you know, it's, it's hostile to Muslims or something, or if you're an atheist and it feels like this company is, you know, hostile to, to, and that's relevant for some reason, somehow, um, looking at the internals of the company and trying to figure out, okay, well, let's make sure that we can onboard more diversity, get more diversity in the front door. And then when people are ready for promotion, make sure we promote them. Right. And if that means that, you know, a white guy like me gets the line jumped on him, you know, that's fine with me personally. (laughs) So if we're in a totally skewed environment, which we are in my experience, like in the decades that I've been working in tech, there's a bunch of young people and there's women and there's, there's people of different races, but it's generally old white guys that do what I do. So, yeah. And I, I can't really explain that. Generally speaking, that's kind of been the case for me too. Uh, in, inside of engineering. I mean, I thought you said there's a lot of women in engineering. Well, so there is, um, at my current job, but up until I worked at UP, I was not, surrounded by women in engineering at all. Oh. So when I worked at Caterpillar, there was, there was no women in engineering. Well, that that's good then, right? It, yeah. Like, I mean, it, it seems to me that it's healthy to have. Oh yeah. A mix of people at so, your current job. That's great. Oh yeah. I would never say that, you know, we shouldn't, we should have barriers to entry to anybody. Yeah. But I think what the lawsuit's about and what affirmative action is that people don't like is actually saying to Chris Hoover, Hey, we really want more men preschool teachers, so we're going to pay you or incentivize you and give your skin color value or your sex value in the preschooling industry to get you to move over to there from whatever it is that you naturally want to do in your life. Yeah. And I think that that's what people get upset about uh, with affirmative action is that we are trying to manipulate things or in the case of the, the law school we're trying to give privileges to certain races so that way they don't have to work as hard. And I I think that doing that is not good for them and it's not good for society as a whole to uh, have that type of affirmative action. Well, yeah. Any, any time an affirmative action attempt fails, you've done way more harm than, than good. Right. If they're not ready for it or if they're not, you know, yeah, if it's a bad fit, it's a, yeah. It's a bad fit. Yeah, and, and and as far as other black people that are against affirmative action, you know, I could say Clarence Thomas is, uh, but you might not care about him. But Thomas Sowell is another one that's, uh, you know, against affirmative action. It, it, it's interesting to me that uh, I guess their perception on it and, and how it, it negatively impacts minority communities to actually give them privilege – like that. And, um, I don't think that privilege benefits anybody. I think it actually, if you're giving privilege to anybody, it's hurting them, not helping them. <laughs> and I, I think that that's, I'll, I'll take privilege. And if anyone wants to give me more, I'll take it. <laughs> so, so you think that it would be helpful for you to someone to say, Hey, because you are white, we're going to lower the standards and let you in. Would that help you or hurt you? let me into what, like law school or something. Yeah. Um, and 
before you answer that, let me also say that the same law schools and also these higher universities don't change the curriculum, right? So they say, we're going to have these entry tests to predict how you'll do inside the program itself. And we know throughout history, we've done these things for, you know, decades that these predictive tests work and this bar works as far as knowing if you're a good fit for the university. Yeah. I would prefer they give me the privilege of lower entry exam and then the privilege of lower work in law school and then the <laughs> privilege of a job that I don't can't handle and way more money and all of the, you know, if the ball keeps rolling forever, uh-huh. then I'm good with it. I'll take the money. Do you think the ball will always roll forever? No, I think it <laughs> Yeah, so it partly it crashes, right? So they're not going to lower the standards of the school once you get in. And you can see that, that the dropout rates for minorities that get the privilege of getting in mm-hmm. uh, because of the color of their skin, they drop out at higher rates. Now they're strapped with all this debt, you know, and no degree, and they've dropped out. They They helped the reputation of the university because the university can say, Hey, look at all these people we let in that were black. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they just left them by the wayside. Right. It it would have been a better fit for them to not even go to that university at all and go to university of Nebraska law school. Right. And there's, in in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. If I would have gotten privilege to go to MIT and the, they would have lowered the standards for entry for me that would have been detrimental to me because I probably I'm, I'm not a hard worker. I'd say I'm mediocre intelligence, right? So I, I, I probably, I would have went to MIT and I just would have dropped out because I, I, I couldn't keep up with the curriculum. It wouldn't be doing me any favors. It, it's bad for me. And I, I think that doing, giving people black privilege like that is not good for anybody. It's, and uh, Clarence Thomas, who's the Supreme Court Justice, actually recounted some of the experiences that he had because when he graduated an Ivy League school, it was hard for him to get a job because once you get out of college, you know, those administrators who are touting this, they've got their benefit, right? But when when you graduate and, and there's a potential employer that thinks that you got into that school due to privilege – but we need you to make money. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he talks about how he had to reprove himself to these organizations uh, that actually wanted to pay him because they felt that uh, they knew that universities were doing this and they just want to make money. You know, that's, that's their bottom line. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't care what skin color you are. They just want to make money. And if, if they think that you got into this university but you should have went to University of Nebraska Lincoln. They don't want to pay for that. They want to pay for Yale, so they're they're not going to hire you. And and that he kind of recounts his experiences with that. And and I I don't think it helps anybody. All right. Well, I'll have to come up with a defense of affirmative action and why I yeah. think it's good. Um, I I don't know. I agree with you. I give up. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I guess it sounds like I've already bored you with that. No, I'm not bored. But, uh, we're, we're at two hours, though, so. Are we? Yeah. I need to. Oh, an hour and a half, yeah. What? We had to restart it because we wanted to listen to the audio. and Oh. That was like the first 30 minutes or oh, so. Well, I've been sitting here for two hours. <laughs> yeah. My butt hurts. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just I realized. something else. I forgot to give you the Wi-Fi password, so I'm a piece of crap. I'm sorry. Oh, no worries. I wouldn't have used it anyway, so. 
All right. Well, thank you once again, audience. This has been episode 31. And, um, uh, yeah, tune in next time to listen to me. Um, apparently, I need to figure out why I think affirmative action is a good idea and mount a defense and crush Chris with it. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> so tune in again. <laughs> good times. I look forward to it. Clarence Thomas. What does he know? And this Walter Williams guy, what does he know? Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget Thomas Sowell. Yeah. What is? What do they know? <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks.